Film. These are the voyages of the movie geek Ramsey. His bonkers mission to binge a filmmaker's entire filmography and tell you all about it on this podcast. But doesn't this need a proper theme tune though? Too soon. R.I.P. Too swanky like Disco's dead. Too kitsch. Okay, Mark. I need something silly, a bit throwback, and gets across the premise of the show. All the films you made, all the films you made, they will be explained, they will be explained. All the films you made, I will watch them all. I will watch them all. All the films you made, all the films you made, all the films you made, all the films. For the first filmmaker of this series, we need someone who hasn't made a huge amount of films like I'd love to do Howard Hawks, but a dude made 46 feature films, I can't go there! I need someone with a good amount of films and whose work invites debate, and you can't get more stimulating and contentious than Quentin Tarantino. Just over two decades, Quentin Tarantino has provided audiences with films that are simultaneously thrilling, compelling, successful, and quite often offensive. Tarantino's tongue-in-cheek style is a mashup of lurid violence, shocking body horror, and belligerent racial politics, where whites nonchalantly articulate the N-word. What? And abundant and seemingly crude images of black criminality are the norm. Despite the range of critical and popular responses to the body of Tarantino's work, he's possibly the most iconic Hollywood filmmaker of our time. Quentin Tarantino is just a modern-day flip on eccentric film directors like Howard Hughes, Alfred Hitchcock, David Lynch, Ross Mayer and Tim Burton. Film directors whose excesses and idiosyncrasies make for personas that periodically rival the films or genres they have come to define. Given this backdrop and Tarantino's oddball persona, he is indeed in good company. Certainly, Tarantino's rockstar status is not just a function of his personality or the quality of his films, yet a more socially critical analysis of Tarantino is just as dodgy. When critics, fans and haters insist on distilling Tarantino down to more specific categorizations, the calculations are all over the shop. Geek genius, idiot savant, Hollywood infant trible, shallow hipster, feminist, racist. All of these labels are used to encompass the complexity of Tarantino, but none of them adequately pin him down. Despite the inherent shortcomings of these tags, the notion of Tarantino as racist is the most compelling, disturbing, perplexing and controversial, and in many ways, the most unjustifiable of the labels that have dogged him. Why? Because it also suggests that Tarantino's films themselves are racially toxic and what he says in their defence is evidence of his own personal racial hatred, which in my opinion is bollocks. For me, examining Tarantino for his racial tendencies is too reductive an analysis and too easy a solution for not engaging with the cinematic representations of race in America that are his films. A more challenging approach is deconstructing why and how Tarantino's films resonate with established and emerging discourses concerning violence and race in America. In this podcast, instead of exploring the inner machinations and racial motivations of Quentin Tarantino, the person, we're going to look at what his body of work has said and is saying about race in America, cinematically, symbolically, metaphorically, literally, impolitely, cynically, sarcastically, crudely, controversially and brilliantly. Well, before we get stuck into his debut, let's get the origin story from the man himself. I was living in the South Bay, and this fellow named Lance Lawson had just opened up this video store called Video Archives. And it really was a movie lover's heaven. It was really terrific. I was a customer there, and I really liked it. And uh, eventually he asked me if I wanted a job. And I was like, yeah, I'd love a job here. This would be a dream. And, and it was. It was until I became a director. It was the best job I'd ever had. And, um, and I ended up working there for like five years. Yeah. 
aside from writing my scripts that no one ever read, uh, you know, my only form of artistic expression was managing this video store. I had like, a, not a shelf, but like a bookcase that was my own, that every week I featured stuff. And they were like little mini film festivals every week. And it was like, um, during the Heist Film Festival, all this stuff is sitting up there, like Thomas Crown Affair, and the Asphalt Jungle, Top Copy and everything. And then I'm like looking at it, and I think, God, you know, these are pretty cool. Why does, you know, I haven't seen one of these made in a long time. Why doesn't somebody make a heist film? And that's like kind of what put the idea in my mind for Reservoir Dogs. I just didn't think I was ever gonna be able to deal my way in. No one's gonna say, you know, we're gonna take a chance on you, kid. I just never thought that would ever happen. And so out of frustration, I wrote Reservoir Dogs because I had just sold a script and I was gonna take the money that I used to sell this script and I was going to make the movie with that. I mean, I was gonna shoot Reservoir Dogs for $30,000, 16-millimeter, black and white. That's why it all takes place in one room. Usually there's some movie that comes out, usually in the independent circles, that will inspire you as a filmmaker to make you want to do something like that and uh, makes it seem that it's possible to do something. And, you know, before Blood Simple, I think movies along those lines for other people in my generation or a little bit above me would be stuff like She's Gotta Have It or Jim Jarmusch's uh, Stranger Than Paradise, or Steven Sonnenberg's uh, uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. But to me, the one that really knocked it out of the park, that bam, I realized that I could maybe do something like that, was uh, Blood Simple. It's a really fun movie, but the thing that I liked the most about it was, was the fact that I, I always noticed that when an art film came out from independent circles, that it actually had a genre base that those were the ones I always preferred, even like when it comes to like the Truffaut films or the Godard movies, the ones that were, he, they were kind of uh, jumping off from a genre base were the ones that I always found the most fun. And when I saw Blood Simple, I thought it was terrific and that literally was my intention for Reservoir Dogs. Like, what is a Reservoir Dog? I don't answer the question what a Reservoir Dog is because one, and I'm not being a jerk by not answering it because it's more of a mood thing than anything. Those guys are the Reservoir Dogs. Whatever the hell that is, that's them. But the reason I don't like give you it, where I actually, where it came from, because it did come from somewhere, uh, is because um, I like people telling me what they think it means, all right? Because people have come up to me and they told me some really wild things. But the, and the thing, as far as I'm concerned, whatever they say, they're correct. Somebody once said to me, you know, uh, uh, oh, Reservoir Dogs is obviously a, 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 a comment on straw dogs, right? Yeah, and it's like, well, okay. and it's obviously uh, means rat. You know, Reservoir Dogs is like a rat. You know, that's obviously that. Somebody said, no, 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 Reservoir. No, I, I figured it all out. This is what it is. It's res means in reserve. All right, uh, dogs. Oh no, res war, 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 war. All right, the reserve war dogs. The reserve dogs of war. That's what it means, right? You know. You know, there's no reservoir in it, but there is a war going on, all right? They're in reserve. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I love that. And the thing, the minute I just say, well, no, actually, what it means is in the 18th century, there was these uh, Celtic, you know, okay. the minute I say that, all right, all of uh, their creativity goes to dust. And I want to keep that coming. I like that. What we saw last night and the night before in Los Angeles is not about civil rights. It's not a message of protest. It's been the brutality of a mob, pure and simple. And let me assure you, I will use whatever force is necessary to restore order. At the time Tarantino was writing Reservoir Dogs, LA was a powder keg of racial tensions, which was reflected in the city's contribution to hip hop, the subgenre known as gangster rap. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. When a graphic video aired on news networks depicting four white LAPD officers savagely beating a black motorist named Rodney King, it put LA's police tensions on blast for the whole world to see. The spark that erupted those tensions was when the jury found all four officers not guilty. They told me what I saw on television did not happen. And I am infuriated that they would think that I am ignorant enough not to know what I saw. The way I see it is uh, we have people doing their job. They did their job and there was a jury that stated that they were doing their job. You know, back when I was in my 20s and, and broke, uh, I was a little scared of the cops, all right? And oftentimes I you had warrants out on me for traffic stuff that I never took care of and everything. And you know, and what would literally happen, I would have like, like I said, traffic crap and whatever, and then I'd have like $1,500 warrants on me and I'd make $10,000 a year, so I'd get stopped and then I'd have to do eight days in county jail because I couldn't pay for it. Now, I'm a rich guy and I, and I live in the Hollywood Hills. When I see a cop driving around my neighborhood, I have no doubt that they are uh, there for my best interest, for both me and my safety and protecting me and my property. 
And I'm sure if you go to Steen's Landing out here and knock on doors and ask them, they'll say the same thing. And I'm sure if you go to Pasadena or Glendale and knock on doors, they'll say the same thing. If you go to Inglewood, California and start knocking on doors, and they're not going to say the same thing because they don't feel that way. Because ever since the war on drugs happened about 30 years ago, as opposed to protecting the community per se, they've been busting every son and daughter and, 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 and husband and, uh, uh, and father uh, for piddling little drug offenses. And that is the truth. And I do believe that there is institutional racism going on, that black males and brown males are uh, criminalized in their eyes. They are, there is a suspicion of criminality going on. The verdict and the subsequent riots tore apart the social fabric of a multicultural city and for six days it put the city on near about standstill. You can definitely see that time's influence, you know, the ultra-violence and police tension worm its way into the Revisor Dog script. I could have an idea in my head for five, six, seven years, all right? And I've kind of little by little been working out different things about it. The day that I sit down to do it, whatever is going on with me at the time will find its way into the piece. It has to or the piece isn't worth making. All right, uh, an analogy I always use, because all of my writing techniques, I never took any writing classes or seminars or anything like that, read any pam pamphlets. My whole thing was um, everything I learned as an actor, studying acting for six years, I've basically applied to writing. If I'm playing on, I don't know, whatever, uh, Sugar Babies or something, you know, something really <laughs> crazy, all right, Sugar Babies, okay, on, 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 in a theater production. All right, and I'm driving on my way to the theater, and uh, uh, I hit a dog on the way to the theater that night. Okay, now that doesn't make you commit suicide after you know, killing a dog, but it, it's gonna affect you, yeah. all right, okay? And no, I'm affected by that. Now, the thing is, when I go out on stage, I have to bring that experience on with me, or what am I doing up there, all right? That is obviously going on with me at that time, and that needs to be, that needs to be on the stage. It's because it's what's happening inside of me. Now, if I'm doing Sugar Babies, or, or Death of a Salesman, or You Can't Take It With You, this doesn't mean the play all of a sudden becomes about a dead dog. Yeah. All right, but it definitely, I'm not there unless I bring that on with me and make that work inside of the material. If I'm not, then you could just send a robot out there. That's just good acting. That's what you have to do. You can't deny anything. All right. Well, the same thing with me as a writer. If I was writing the Guns of the Navarone, all right, and then right in the right at the beginning of writing it or in the middle of writing it, I I, I break up with my girlfriend who I'm like madly in love with and in my heart is is is, is shattered. All right, that's got to work into it. Now, the story is still about a bunch of commandos going to blow up a couple of cannons, all right? right? But that pain that I'm feeling has got to find its way into this story, or else, yeah. what am I doing? Violence was in the air, but also postmodernism was in the zeitgeist. On September the 16th, 1992, a month before Reservoir Dogs was released, the third episode of the fourth season of Seinfeld aired. It was called The Pitch, and in it, the lead character Jerry was approached by NBC execs to come up with an idea for a TV series. He had zero ideas, but unfortunately, his best pal George was all too ready to help. Okay, 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 I got it. You run an antique store. <laughs> yeah, and? And, and people come into the store and you get involved in their lives. What person who runs an antique store gets involved in people's lives? Why not? So someone comes in to buy an old lamp and suddenly I'm getting them out of a jam. This episode was not only a deconstruction of the American sitcom, but it's also a riposte to it. The American sitcom, which were all built around motivating touchstones, whether that was a job or a setting like Cheers, Taxi, or raising a family like Full House or The Cosby Show or Roseanne. Seinfeld found those tropes ludicrous and made fun of them, but it doesn't stop by simply taking the piss. It also manages to lay down a mission statement. So what's happening with the TV show? You come up with anything? No, nothing. Why don't they have salsa on the table? What do you need salsa for? Salsa is now the number one condiment in America. Do you know why? Because people like to say salsa. <laughs> Excuse me, do you have any salsa? We need more salsa. Where's the salsa? No salsa. You know, it must be impossible for a Spanish person to order salsa and not get salsa. <laughs> I wanted salsa, not salsa! <laughs> so do you know the difference between salsa and salsa? You have the salsa after the salsa. <laughs> This should be the show. This is the show. What? Yes. Just talk. Yeah, right. I'm really serious. I think that's a good idea. Just talking? Well, what's the show about? It's about nothing. No story? No, forget the story. 
You gotta have a story. Who says you gotta have a story? Remember when we were waiting for, for that table in that Chinese restaurant that time? That could be a TV show. And who's on the show? Who are the characters? I could be a character. You? Yeah, you base a character on me. So on the show, there's a character named George Costanza? Yeah. What? There's something wrong with that? I'm a character. People are always saying to me, you know, you're quite a character. And who else is on the show? Elaine could be a character. Kramer. Now, he's a character. <laughs> so everybody I know is a character on the show. Right. And it's about nothing. Absolutely nothing. Seinfeld is still a sitcom, but stripped of the cliches of network TV. Seinfeld was not the only show in town deconstructing comedy. Jerry Shandling's two shows, It's the Jerry Shandling Show and The Larry Sanders Show, took postmodernism even further. Shandling mercilessly parodied the entertainment industry itself, standing up as he revealed how the sausage was made. Now, this was very similar to what Tarantino did with the American Hollywood crime genre. Now, that's what I'm always kind of trying to do with my genre films. I don't know if I'm succeeding or not, but that's the attempt to take something you've seen before. I love it. I respect it. And I'm going to deliver the goods. I'm not just yeah. going to be some arty guy, but I'm, I'm delivering the goods. But I'm also trying to do it in a much different way you've ever seen before. Like in the case of Reservoir Dogs, do a heist film. Deliver the goods is a heist film, but it's a heist film where you never see the heist. That's just my goofy way of doing it. I actually owe a big debt to figuring out my style from Elmore Leonard because, you know, he was the first writer I'd ever read, and but also that Charles Williford did it as well. But he was one of the first writers I'd ever read that just let mundane conversations yeah. actually inform the characters, you know, and then all of a sudden, poof, you know, you're, you know, you're into whatever story you're telling. It was in this social and creative hot spring that Reservoir Dogs entered the world. And now I guess it's a great time to go under the hood of that movie and examine it scene by scene. Content warning. Just like Tarantino's movies, there's going to be a lot of racial slurs dropped into this podcast. So you've been warned. The opening scene of the movie is a prologue before the credits. It acts like an overture, setting the tone but also introducing us to Tarantino's distinctive voice and his George Constanza-like mission statement of a bunch of criminals not in a dingy room hashing out a heist asphalt jungle style, but in a diner discussing the meaning of Madonna's Like a Virgin. Let me tell you what Like a Virgin's about. It's all about a girl who digs a guy with a big dick. Entire song. It's a metaphor for big dicks. No, it ain't. It's about a girl who's very vulnerable. She's been fucked over a few times and then uh, she meets a guy who's Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, Green. Toby. They tell that fucking bullshit to the tourists. Toby, who the fuck is Toby? Like a virgin's not about some sensitive girl who meets a nice fella. That's what True Blue's about. No, granted, no argument about that. What's True Blue? No, you ain't heard True Blue. It's a big ass in from another. I don't even follow that top to the pop shit. And you've never heard True Blue. Yeah, so I didn't say I ain't heard of it. You know, what I asked is, how's it go? Excuse me for not being the world's biggest Madonna fan. Personally, I can do without her. I used to like her early stuff. Borderline, when she got out into that poppy don't preach phase, I tuned out. What we get is a masterclass in deconstructing an artistic text. But it's not being demonstrated by a boring lecturer, but instead a motley ragtag collection of criminals in witty patter and a fresh and interesting way to show the dynamics of the group which we'll be hanging out with, as well as their banter, which is super racist. Fucking niggers! Niggers, huh? Nigger, nigger, niggers. So why the hate, QT? It immediately brought to mind that Tarantino is a 70s kid, and running through most of his work, especially his 90s movies, is the influence of Blaxploitation and New Hollywood. Now, Blaxploitation films are super interesting for lots of reasons, but one of them is they're not afraid of showing racism as a presence in everyday American society. Well, if it ain't King Kong and Frankenstein. Hey, what kind of talk is that, soul brother? Don't you know that black is beautiful? Now, new Hollywood crime movies were full of casual racism, the biggest of which is The Godfather. In a scene where Vito Corleone calls the meeting of the five families, we see an example of the locker room racism of the mob. I also don't believe in drugs. For years, I paid my people extra so they wouldn't do that kind of business. I want to control it as a business to keep it respectable. I don't want it near schools. I don't want it sold to children. That's an infamia. My city, we would keep the traffic in the dark, people, to call it. They're animals anyway, so let them lose their souls. 
Rather than that scene being viewed as an example of Coppola's own racism, we see it as the private negotiations of organised crime elites divvying up power and profit. We see what kind of people are worth protecting and whether they're considered people to begin with. You get racial slurs all over the shop in French Connection. Taxi driver, there's too much to list. But I hear, dude, that was the 70s. QT's doing this shit now. And I retort, wait, you think white criminals stop being racist? And also, Miles Scorsese does this shit now. Case in point, The Departed. That movie begins with a monologue by the big boss, played by the amazingly madcap Jack Nicholson. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Years ago, we had the church. That was only a way of saying we had each other. The Knights of Columbus were real headbreakers, true guineas. They took over their piece of the city. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. May rest in peace. That's what the niggas don't realize. If I got one thing against the black chappies, it's this. No one gives it to you. You have to take it. Just like the Reservoir Dogs gang, there's a real swagger and pulpy lyricism in what he says and how he says it. Like, you almost forget he's basically saying that a Protestant work ethic, as well as the luck of the Irish, has led white Bostonians to success, whereas black Bostonians are impoverished because of a welfare mentality. It's messed up, sure, but it's coming from a criminal scumbag. What do you expect? And I say the same about QT's Gabby Criminals in this diner. I actually really try to have morality not even be an issue at all. Don't want that to have any play whatsoever. I, that would be me commenting on them. Right. That is me sticking my big nose into their lives and then their philosophies. Right. I let them be who they are. And you know, my biggest feeling is, I just want the same rights that a novelist has. We write a novel about a bastard, but it can be totally interesting. <laughs> we lived through the 80s, where like fucking every Hollywood movie, everyone had to be likable and everybody had to be understandable. Right. And, uh, right. and the test scores were like, oh, well, we didn't like him, so we got to change every goddamn thing. You know, and um, I didn't make movies at that time, but I was watching them and I said, I'm not going to make that crap. There's also an aspect of Tarantino obliviously channeling all his favourite crime novels, films and black exploitation as he writes, which is illustrated by the man himself in this anecdote. Oddly enough though, I remember my, my mom tells stories and I remember them, she doesn't have to remind me of them, where I would like uh, see a movie and I'd like it. And I used to play with G.I. Joes all the time. You know, I had a whole bunch of G.I. Joes, those dolls. And I would always play movies, basically. I would just kind of like do my version of whatever yeah. I saw, yeah. you know. And then I would like be acting out all the parts with all the G.I. Joes. And I would be like, you know, kind of like directing these little plays just for myself with the G.I. Joes. And the same thing is like, you know, I would, you know, and I'd see some movies because I saw all kinds of stuff. Not just Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo, but like all kinds of like, uh, uh, you know, my mom took me to see Carl Knowledge and The Wild Bunch and all these kind of movies when I was a kid. She just like, movies. He's a movie. Yeah, There's right. nothing he's going to see in a movie that's going to mess him up. Yeah. But it's like funny though because it's like I would like, you know, I would act them out like I saw in the movie. So I'd have like, the, oh, you dirty, you know, yeah, yeah. And, oh, your mother, you know, and be like, you know, Quentin, what's going on up there? You know, <laughs> it's not me, mom. It's them. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. the G.I. Joe's. Yeah. It's just the dialogue from the movie. It's not me, mom. It's them. It's Tarantino's writing stick. Question is, do these unsavory aspects help create interesting and compelling characters, or is it just a get-out-of-jail-free card? You decide, but I think it's definitely the prior. The weird thing that we notice about these criminals straight away is how they're dressed, virtually all in identical business suits, white shirts and black ties, signalling the type of professional conformity typically associated with the traditional corporate attire. My guys wear black suits, and it, you know, and it's like Melville's trench coats or like uh, 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 Leone's dusters and uh, the poncho that the, the man with no name wore, and, and the kind of almost union outfit that Lee Van Cleve would wear. John Woo's characters had their own suit of clothing and their own glasses, and the way they wore the what a match in their mouth or whatever. So when I came along, it was my thing was to establish my own sense of style, my own sense of like a, a, a coat of armor for them. And mine was the black suits. That was the thing is in Reservoir Dogs. And Reservoir Dogs is a, is a practical reason why I have them wear black suits. Because a lot of times when robbers will uh, uh, commit a robbery, they'll want to adopt a uniform. Could be black suits, could be anything. It could be raiders jackets, it could be parkas, you know. Uh, uh, you know uh, it could be anything, all right? Uh, the idea is that they go in and then they do the robbery and they all look alike. All right, so when they leave and the cops come back later, they go, okay, well, what do they look like? But, uh, I don't know. They look like a bunch of black suits. How do I know? Maybe one guy had red hair, maybe. I don't know. You know? 
you know, and it just they lose they uh, they fail to be distinguishable from one another. So in that way, you get to, I get to scratch an artistic itch and a cool itch, you know, and then also I get to be actually uh, realistic. After the Like a Virgin speech that introduces us to the criminals and sets up the dynamics and some foreshadowing. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? Shit. <laughs> you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. Which is a Muhammad Ali line, by the way. We get into the debate on the merits of tipping. And it's all the crooks versus Mr. Pink. It's here in the tipping scene is where we learn that most of the criminals, except for Mr. Pink, have the moral code of the jobbing criminal who, despite living outside society, they see themselves as blue-collar workers. So they see the waitress as being part of their group, whereas the cutthroat pragmatic capitalism of the modern criminal is symbolised in Mr. Pink. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? You know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. I don't even know a fucking Jew would have the balls to say that. I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. Uh, it's for the birds. <coughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. And I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job that society deemed tip-worthy. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So I was working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And it's non-college bullshit you're giving me. I got two words for that. Learn to fucking type. Because if you're expecting me to help out with the rent, you're in for a big fucking surprise. I swear down, if Mr. Pink was a YouTube personality, this take would be called Mr. Pink destroys libtard jewelry themes. We fade out as they leave the table and we hear the super laid back DJ of K Billy's Sound of the 70s Weekend, who acts like the DJ of the soundtrack. It's a 70s throwback weekend, but so is this film in a way. A 70s crime movie sensibility set in the early 90s. It's a device the film director Walter Hill used more explicitly in the cult movie The Warriors that has a radio host playing soul classics as a kind of Greek chorus. All right now. For all you bumpers out there in the big city, all you street people with an ear for the action, I've been asked to relay a request from the Gramercy Ritz. It's a special for the Warriors. That's that real live bunch from Coney. And I do mean the Warriors. Here's a hit with them in mind. K. Billy Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend just keeps on coming with this little ditty that reached up to 21 in May of 1970. The George Baker Selection, Little Green Bag. In this moment, we get the thrill of joining a caper as well as basking in the swaggering brotherhood of these criminals. The next scene of the movie proper is a real attention grabber. It's where a gobby film flips on its head and we dropped smack dab into the aftermath of a heist gone wrong. We see Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth, hollering and bleeding in the backseat of the car as Harvey Cartel's Mr. White drives, telling him that... You're gonna be okay! It's super intense and gory, but when you discover where Tarantino got the scene from, it makes a lot of sense. I think my favorite war movie probably is De Palma's Casualties of War. 
and there's a scene in here, it happens towards the beginning of the movie, where Sean Penn's character's uh, 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 best friend is shot, and he's uh, taking care of him. And I really used it when I was doing Reservoir Dogs, as far as like just like not copying it frame by frame or anything, but just when I was writing the script emotionally, as far as like the scene at the beginning between Mr. Orange and Mr. White, when Mr. Orange is shot, Mr. White's dealing with him. Just the feeling between the two men. Uh, there's one line coming up here when he puts him on the helicopter. That uh, you know, I did up my own variation of it. You know, where Harvey Cattell is dealing with Mr. Orange, and he says, "Look into my eyes. Look into my eyes." You know. You know, you know, you're going to be okay, or he says something, but you know, the whole idea, you know, and here they have the line, he has the line, you know, look into my eyes, I'm going to hypnotize you. I didn't steal the whole thing, but it's like, uh, uh, but just the idea of, look at here. Sarge, Sarge, look in my fucking eyes, I'm going to hypnotize you. Good. You're fine. Hey. I know it, man. Just look in my eyes, Larry. Look in my eyes. Tell them anything. You'll be safe, man. You're not gonna fucking die, kid, alright? Then they arrive at the warehouse and meet Mr. Pink. Now it helps that Mr. Pink and Mr. White are both confused at what happened. So we learn as they figure out how it all went down. We get a flashback. Now this line, did you get any people? No, just cops. It brought to mind the police term NHI, which stands for no human involved. It's a super fucked up term that the police used to use for the deaths of people they deemed undesirable, like drug addicts, prostitutes, and even the homeless. Google it, it's true. It's really a kind of dehumanization of the enemy that happens in war. And this is the criminals flipping it to talk about police. In Mr. White and Mr. Pink, you have the role models of two kinds of criminal. In Mr. Pink, pragmatic, let's go, the plan is torched, basically self-preservation. In Mr. White, you've got let's stick to the plan, trust in a group and the code. You then switch to the Mr. White chapter. Now we hear the story of his criminal days working with his sidekick, Alabama. Is this before or after True Romance? We don't know. Mr. White and Joe Cabot's relationship is that of contemporaries or maybe brothers. Then we're back in real time in a warehouse. We've got Mr. White and Mr. Pink arguing about their dying colleague, Mr. Orange. White wants to take him to the hospital. Pink's like, fuck him. But White lets slip that he told him his name and his home town. Then we get a Mexican standoff, the first Quentin Tarantino trope. Pink tells Mr. White off for letting his emotions get the better of him, not because he's protecting Mr. White from possibly being exposed, but his exposure could lead to his own. Mr. Pink only looks out for numero uno. We then get this cool track back reveal on Mr. Blonde who has this rockabilly Robert Mitchum vibe in a shot that reminds me of the reveal of Harry in The Third Man. Then Mr. Pink and Mr. White ditch their differences and unite in having it all out with Mr. Blonde. Mr. White's pissed that Mr. Blonde didn't stick to the plan and Mr. Pink is pissed at all the needless killing. Blonde doesn't give a shit. Blonde sees anybody that gets in his way as fair game and he treats Mr. White's constant complaining as just an annoyance. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy, or are you going to bite? Then Mr. Pink says... The sheer cheek of this is fantastic. <laughs> the sheer gall. Mr. Pink is playing peacemaker here, and to do this, he's disparaging black people's competency by calling black behaviour highly emotional, impulsive, immature, and needlessly violent and self-destructive. It's deeply ironic because all these guys have done from the very start is squabble. Squabble over Madonna, squabble over tipping and how the robbery was run. And we'll see as the story unfolds, Pink's comics are more descriptive of male ego and fragile white masculinity. The movie now descends into a vibe that is more like The Thing in that they're in this enclosed space and have to figure out who the rat is. We then get the first appearance of Quentin Tarantino's trademark trunk shot revealing the kidnapped cop. This switches to the Mr. Blonde chapter of the film. Before Mr. Blonde appears, we're in Joe Cabot's office. He's on a phone, talking business, sitting in a leather chair behind a big desk framed by bright white elephant tusks. He's a big deal. The visual cues clearly indicate his status as a big game capitalist. 
Mr. Blonde walks in and we learn that his name is Vic Vega. Like Alabama, he's a tie to a future Quentin Tarantino film. His relationship to Joe Cabot is like father and son. And when Cabot's son, Eddie, rolls in, Vic and him roughhouse like brothers. Intimate, but before anyone gets the wrong idea... Look, Vic, whatever you want to do in the privacy of your own home, go to it. But don't try to fuck me. I mean, I don't think you that way. Snuggling with you under the covers... No homo. Spooning with you, just like we're lovers. No homo. Our lips touch for a minute or two, but no homo. Yeah. The point of this scene is that Vic is out of prison and wants to get back to the only life he knows, crime. But his annoying Jobsworth parole officer is all up in his grill. Cabot's like, You know, it never ceases to amaze me. Fucking jungle bunny goes out there, slits some old woman's throat for 25 cents. He gets Doris Day for a parole officer. Good fella like you, winds up with a ball-busting prick. Cabot is doing that reverse racism bollocks of whites being victims to preferential treatment given to blacks. It's the same ballpark as Frank Costello's speech in The Departed. Nice guy Eddie looks at the vulnerable Vic and goes, Ain't that a sad sight, daddy? Man walks into prison, a white man walks out talking like a fucking nigger. You know what? I think it's all that black semen been pumped up your ass so far and now it's back into your fucking brain. It's coming out your mouth. It's like hanging out or being near black people in prison has tainted his whiteness. And it also has this really interesting display of privilege. After Cabot cries reverse racism and nice guy Eddie questions Vic's whiteness, we see them do their fairy godmother trick and fix Vic's problems. This ain't all that bad. Look, we can get you a lot of legitimate jobs. I'll get you down to Long Beach as a dock worker. I don't want to live no fucking crates, Eddie. Vic, you ain't gonna live shit. You don't even work there. But as far as the records are concerned, you do. Call Matthews, the foreman, and tell him he's got a new guy. Boom, you're on the rotation. You get a time card. It's clocked in and out for you every day. And at the end of the week, you get a nice paycheck. Doc workers do very well. So you can move into a halfway decent place without the Scagnetti fuck going, hey, where the fuck's the money come? And if he decides to make a surprise visit, that's the day we sent you to Tustin. Pick up a load of shit and bring it back. If he comes back again, hey, sorry, Seymour. You just missed him. We had to send him to the Taft Airstrip five fucking hours away. We had a load of shit we had to have him pick up there and bring back here. Look, part of your job, Vic, is going different places. That's the beauty of it. We got places all over the place. And now Vic is back in the game. Oh, yeah. That's the surface story of the scene. Go under the hood and we see it's really about a broke white criminal who's made economically viable again, but also fully restored as a white man of honour and respect. We then cut back to the warehouse and we see Mr. White, Mr. Pink and Mr. Blonde beat up the cop that they brought out from the van and the music is fun. This is intercut with nice guy Eddie explaining the sitch, aka the plot, to his dad on his brick phone. All I know is what Vic told me, man. He said the place turned into a fucking bullet festival. He took a cop hostage just to get the fuck out of there. I don't know who did what. I don't know who's got to loot. I don't know if anybody's got to loot. I don't know who's dead. I don't know who's alive. I don't know who's caught. I don't know who's not. Nice guy Eddie enters the warehouse and is brought up to date with the situation by an emotional Mr. Pink and White. At this point, Eddie thinks they screwed up the heist. He doesn't think it was a setup. So he gives his take on the merits of torture. Mr. Bastard, you told me about? Why are you beating on him? Maybe he could tell us who the fuck set us up. If you fucking beat this prick long enough, he'll tell you you started the goddamn Chicago fire. Now that don't necessarily make it fucking so! Come on, man, think! Clearly, Donald Rumsfeld hasn't seen this movie. Nice guy Eddie, Mr. Pink and Mr. White then go to move their cars from outside the warehouse, leaving Mr. Blonde to look after the captured cop. In the words of Arnie, Big mistake. We now know that Mr. Blonde is a maverick psycho. We get a torture scene that's a cross between the rape scene in Clockwork Orange and a bullfight set to which was then a very deep cut Steeler's Wheels tune. You ever listen to K-Billy's? Super sounds of the 70s. I was mucking around in my bedroom when I was writing the script, diving through my record collection. But I don't even think I had to look for it. It just was right there. It was just right there. How I knew it was going to work. First time an actor came in, and it wasn't even like his reading was that fantastically great, but it was the first time I'd ever heard the song with actually people acting out the scene. And, and me and the producer, we got chills. We just knew it was gonna be awesome. It's part of the scene. It's not, it's not a, an abstract thing there. Uh, it's in there. The, the, the guy getting his ear cut off his hear was hearing it. Not Suddenly a, in mono. Not in, yeah. I was gonna say that Sorry. joke. Sorry.
Now, I love the moment where Mr. Blonde leaves the warehouse. We follow him with a handheld camera as the music dips. Then we go outside to suburban normalcy and get the shock of the petrol canister in the boot. Then the music picks up as he returns to the warehouse. What's cool is that visually, all we get is Michael Madsen going to the car, getting the petrol canister and then returning to the warehouse. But everything is told sonically in the sound design, the music and the whimpers of the cop, then the sound of kids playing and cicada sounds. This tiny scene is also in and of itself a perfect snapshot of suburban horror, the darkness that goes on behind doors of a prim and proper neighbourhood. As Mr. Blonde pours petrol over the pleading cop and is about to set him ablaze, we're all squirming with horrified anticipation because we've all seen the poor cop tortured and now we're all praying he stops. And the tension builds and builds and it's surprisingly cut when out of nowhere, Mr. Orange shoots him. It's a shock and a relief that flits back to shock when we learn that Mr. Orange is the rat. And it's also a really nice touch that the tortured cop knew that Mr. Orange was an undercover cop, but Mr. Orange himself did not recognise him. The next twist is that we learn that the cops are lying in wait around the corner from the warehouse and Mr. Orange can't intervene to save the dying cop till the big boss turns up. Then we move to Mr. Orange's chapter. On a deserted rooftop, we meet the real Mr. Orange, Freddy the cop and his boss, Holdaway. What is love? Holdaway, not Hadaway, gosh. Now, to most people, Revs Are Dogs is a story about how a white undercover cop took down a bunch of dysfunctional gangsters. But the big picture POV is Revs Are Dogs is about a black cop who ensnares a bunch of hapless racist criminals. Okay, so at this point in the movie, we've been in the sole company of an exclusively white heist crew. And now, against this setup stands Holdaway, the only black character who, in my opinion, is the ideological centre of Revs Are Dogs' racial politics. Holdaway acts as the physical critique of the racial one-liners we've heard so far in this film. Freddy is really a cipher for Holdaway. Freddy is only able to walk among the hardened and vicious criminals because of Holdaway's precise tutelage, which is illustrated in Revisor Dog's most cinematic flourish, the commode scene. It's essentially an acting lesson, the work an actor does to remember a scene and to make it real for themselves. The speech is visually told over five places. We get a rooftop line reading, a bedroom practice, a rehearsal in a graffitied up amphitheatre, a sports bar where Freddy is actually performing it in front of the criminals. Then we're in a bathroom for a dramatisation of the story with Freddy's voiceover and Freddy as a character in his own story. The police dog barks at him. Then we switch to Freddy as a character telling the story as the camera 360s around him. He's breaking it, thinking the cops have rumbled him and the camera illustrates this inertia with 360 spinning. Then we're back to the dramatisation of the story without the voiceover. The cops ignore him and go back to their own anecdote as Freddy washes his hands. There's tension in his mannerisms as he washes them, then walks to the hand dryer. Then in a very Walter Murch moment, the hand dryer blows in a very loud, unnatural, exaggerated way. It sounds like a jet taking off and the cops look over. Tension mounts and he turns it off and everything goes back to normal and he walks away. The way one bit of dialogue transitions through different locations reminds me of a cool scene from Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie reads Clyde a poem she wrote called The Story of Bonnie and Clyde from the back seat of her car. We go from that moment to a police station where a cop is reading a newspaper clipping of the poem that Bonnie cheekily sent to the newspaper. We can now hear Bonnie reading it in voiceover. Then we go to a field where Bonnie and Clyde are having a picnic and reading the poem in the actual newspaper. So does the commode story work? Hell yeah, it works. They totally buy the story and he's part of the crew. All he has to do is keep his cool. Don't pussy out on me now. I don't know. I don't know shit. You're not going to get hurt. You're fucking Beretta. They believe every fucking word because you're super cool. There's a weird moment when we see Mr. Orange enter Nice Guy Eddie's car from the POV of the cops that are tailing them. It's weird because they don't see their colleague as heroically as he sees himself. In fact, they see him as almost a schmuck. There goes our boy. I swear, guy has to have rocks in his head the size of Gibraltar to work undercover. You want one of these? Yeah, give me the bear claw. In the backseat of Nice Guy Eddie's car, we see Mr. Orange for the first time as a fly on a wall. There's this cool visual technique where we see Mr. White, Mr. Pink and Nice Guy Eddie always shot together. But when we see Freddy, he's mostly shot alone, listening and observing. We even see him crack a wry smile at his new band of brothers' casual racism. Maybe he's faking it. Maybe they're tickling some repressed racism. Who knows? 
We then cut to the naming scene, where we finally learn how they got their names. Hear your names, Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink. I think it's interesting that the three contested colours are brown, pink and black. Mr. Brown objects to being called Mr. Brown because it's close to Mr. Shit. But blonde is close to yellow. And what criminal wants to be labelled a coward? Pink triggers their homophobia and black... Why can't we pick our own colours? No way, no way. Try it once and doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. But they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. It's funny how, after spouting so much hatred against blacks, all the criminals want to be called Mr. Black. Everybody wants to be black, but nobody wants to be black. Then we cut to a series of still photos and realise that it's Mr. White and Mr. Orange in a stakeout. Mr. White gets Mr. Orange to relay back the robbery plan. It's the second test of memorization Freddie performs, the first being the commode scene set by the police to endear him to the criminals, whereas this has a vibe of a son endearing himself to his father. Unlike Mr. Blonde, who sociopathically sees everyone in his way as an enemy, Mr. White explains how he uses his knowledge of bank procedure and human psychology to conduct a bank robbery. We then cut to Mr. White, Mr. Orange and Mr. Brown making a getaway after the job goes south. Mr. White shoots a couple of cops, Chung Young Fat style, in a visual reference to City on Fire. Mr. Brown dies and Mr. White and Mr. Orange make an escape. We get the irony of Mr. Orange being shot by a civilian who he kills in retaliation. Now he's tainted. By chapter's end, we're back at the first scene of the movie where Mr. White is bleeding in the back of a car. Again, it's like poetry, so if they rhyme. In the next scene, we're back in a warehouse where Nice Guy Eddie, Mr. White and Mr. Pink return to a bloody mess. The captured cop and Mr. Blonde are dead on the floor and Mr. Orange makes up a story about Mr. Blonde being the rat. But Nice Guy Eddie ain't buying it cause... The man you just killed just got released from prison. He got caught at a company warehouse full of hot items. He could have fucking walked. All he had to do was say my dad's name but he didn't. He kept his fucking mouth shut and he did his fucking time and he did it like a man. He did four years for us. So, Mr. Orange, you're telling me that this very good friend of mine, who did four years for my father, who in four years never made a deal no matter what they dangled in front of him, you're telling me that now that this man is free and we're making good on our commitment to him, he's just gonna decide out of the fucking blue to rip us off? Why don't you tell me what really happened? Bad move, Freddy. Congratulations, you played yourself. Then Joe Cabot enters and outs Mr. Orange as the undercover cop because... The only one I wasn't 100% on. But Mr. White won't let Mr. Orange die and it's another Mexican standoff. The trust in Mr. White staunchly defending Mr. Orange, Joe Cabot trusting his own instincts and nice guy Eddie just wants Mr. White to... They all shoot at each other and die, except Mr. Pink, who slinks off with the diamonds. His reward, I guess, for being a lone wolf and not letting his emotions get in the way of the crime. With the sound of police sirens, we learn Mr. White has survived and he attends to the dying Freddy, cradling him like his child. And in reference to the sirens, he apologises to him that they both have to do some time. This Mr. Blonde guy is a trusting dum-dum, isn't he? Congratulations, you played yourself. It's then that Freddie blurts out that he's a cop and the whole scene turns. At the Sundance Institute, because I was there with Reservoir Dog, and that was a really great experience. I mean, no one really had ever really believed in me that much at all, all right? To actually have them believe in me and, and send me to Utah. I'd never seen snow ever in my life from Los Angeles, all right, you know? And, um, and then everything was kind of just there for you to put your best foot forward. I mean, it was a really lovely thing. And I was really touched by the whole thing. And one of the things that they say is, we want you to get out of this experience whatever you want to get out of it. But one of the things is, I'm meeting, talking with the resource directors there, resource filmmakers, and one of the directors goes, have you done your subtext work? I go, no, what's that? Ah, you see, you think because you wrote it, you know everything, but you don't know everything. You've done the writer work. You haven't done the director work. You need to do your subtext work. So he's describing this whole thing to me, and I was you know, still pretty young at the time, you know, and I was like, oh, wow, is that really what a director does? Wow, really? Tell me about it. And so they're telling the whole thing, and I was actually really kind of excited to go off and, and give this a shot. So I took to me what I thought was like the most obvious scene you could possibly take. I took Mr. White bringing Mr. Orange into the warehouse all by themselves. Mr. Orange, because he's a cop, is saying, please, and he's dying. <laughs> 
please, please, please take me to the hospital. Mr. White, because he doesn't know he's a cop, is like, no, 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 I can't take you to the hospital. You can just hang in there. So I, I could ask anybody in this theater here, what does that scene mean if you've seen the movie? And you could tell me. But when you actually start putting pen to paper, it becomes a different thing. It actually, a lot of stuff opened up that I hadn't thought about before because subtext is getting beyond what's the obvious there. And so I wrote down, what does Mr. White want from this scene more than anything else in the world? What does Mr. Orange want from this scene more than anything else in this world? And what do I, as the filmmaker, want the audience to take away from this scene more than anything else in the world? And just even writing the obvious shit about Mr. Orange is dying and he wants to be taken to a hospital, all of a sudden, the more I wrote, the more I realized that the movie was a father-son story and that Mr. White was functioning as Mr. Orange's father at that moment. And Mr. Orange was functioning as a son, but he was a son who'd betrayed his father, but his father doesn't know about the betrayal. And he's trying to hide it from him as long as he can because the guilt is really starting to hit him. Yet, Mr. White has faith in Joe Cabot, Lawrence Turney, who is his metaphorical father in this situation. And what does he keep saying? They're like, just don't worry about it. Wait for Joe to get here. When Joe gets here, you're all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. And what happens when Joe gets there? He kills Mr. Orange. And then actually Mr. White has to choose between his father, his spiritual father, his metaphorical father and his metaphorical son. And naturally he chooses his metaphorical son and he's wrong. But he's wrong for all the right reasons. Distraught at the patrol, White puts his gun on the side of a defenseless Freddy's head. And just as the cops burst in and tell him not to shoot, he does. And so do they. The end. For the most part, Quentin Tarantino remained an unknown quantity after Reservoir Dogs, an eccentric guy who made a rad film. The one who did Reservoir Dogs. Okay, yeah. And he's got, he's got another script coming called True Romance. Oh, yeah? Real, this guy's a brilliant writer. Quentin Tartania, something like that. But his next project, True Romance, confirmed that he was a gifted writer. So see you in the next episode of All of the Films.